0: Hey everyone and welcome to At The Letters for March 16th, 2023. Ben Nicholson-Smith here with you on this podcast produced by Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade and I'm joined by Arden Swelling. It's like you never left Arden. I, it <laughs> seems to me as though you're basically in the same hotel room, same spot that you were a week ago, although I'm led to believe that you did actually make it home for a
1: bit. I did. I went home for uh, a few days, which was great to kind of reintroduce myself to civilized society. But uh, yeah, now I'm I'm back, back in Dunedin, going to be here for the uh, the final two weeks. Uh, which you know, it's it's a long and a short amount of time. But man, two weeks until opening day against St. Louis Cardinals on March 30th, as we record here on the morning of March 16th. It's coming up. Yeah, it is. It is. I'm going
0: to be down there covering the Jays as well pretty soon. So looking forward to being down there for the home stretch as well. At the we will be closing out spring training. But in the meantime, I'm here in Toronto. And yeah, Arden, I'm going to pick your brain on a bunch of Jays stuff here in the course of the next uh, couple segments. Vlad Jr. obviously is a topic we want to get to. Ricky Tiedemann has been sort of, you know, away from the game environment since we last spoke due to some shoulder discomfort. There's obviously Jose Barrios, what's going on with him, and the WBC. I mean, it's, it's all kind of connected to the WBC at this point because that is the big topic in baseball. Of course, we're Jays Podcast. We're going to connect it all to the Jays. And really, there's no better place to start than Vlad Jr., uh, who is back in games. As of Wednesday, he was in a game. Um, so I guess to begin... How did Vladdy look and sound being back in games for the first time in kind of almost two weeks?
1: it's funny I kind of wondered if he was going to ease into it and take it easy ramp up as he returned to games he missed 11 days from gameplay but then I saw the lineup for the Jays on Wednesday and it was he's playing first base so the Jays like talked about how yeah, to ease him in with DH duty but they felt pretty like strong enough that they threw him in at first base and I thought okay well like that's a good sign that means he's probably feeling pretty well and then his very first played appearance uh out a ground ball up the first baseline and i'm watching it i'm thinking man like he was motoring uh he was moving up the line so then i went back and looked at some of the data and it was yep like 28 and a half feet per second sprint speed uh like just yeah the the basically where he would be in in the regular season i think it was like a four seven or four eight home to first which again like pretty much where he'd be in the regular season like he was running as hard as he would if it was a regular season game and not a March 15th spring training game where nothing is on the line and he's coming off of a knee injury. So uh seeing that immediately was like, oh, okay, he's feeling pretty good. And then obviously the ball off his bat and his second plate appearance uh, was, what, 114 exit velo, like one of those classic Vlad Jr. line drives to left field that just never reaches an apex before it hits the the wall uh, and gets on an outfielder really quickly. So seeing some some of those results, I thought, all right, I think Vlad's ready to go.
0: Lined in the left by Guerrero, and it is over the head of Reynolds and all the way to the fence. An absolute rocket off the bat of Vladdy for an RBI double. Merrifield scores. Yeah, it's a great sign for the Jays. I mean, to see him moving at top speed Vladdy's kind of sneaky fast. Um, I think we've probably been saying that for a while. He's, he's faster than you would think once he gets going. The stops and starts can be tough, but we'll see. I mean, he was back in the games. That's the main thing. They have two more weeks to ramp him up. And they now know that it will be happening under their supervision. And again, they've, they've opened this up. Like Vlad Jr. was the one who made the decision to pull away from the WBC's first round. That was his call. So that indicates that he was not necessarily going to be reckless. But hard not to notice, he was in the stands for the Dominican-Puerto Rico game in Miami on Wednesday night. And I don't know this for a fact. Arden, maybe you can shed some light on this. I'm guessing he didn't pack his bags for one night. I'm guessing he was prepared uh, to be available to the Dominican if they had advanced. Now we know for a fact it's not happening. He's a Toronto Blue Jay for the rest of this spring.
1: Yeah, I think Vlad would have wanted to join the uh, the Dominicans, certainly, if they had gone on to the knockout stages. And I think the Blue Jays were just slow playing it because obviously the, the Dominican wasn't there yet when, when Vlad obviously left to, to go watch that game. So there was no reason to make a decision at that time or to announce anything at that time. It would have been interesting uh, if the Dominican had gotten there just to see how that decision played out and how the Blue Jays arrived at it and how everybody felt about it. Um, And if there was some sort of like a compromise where, okay, you can go play for them, but you can only DH. I mean, how would that look with Vladdy having played five innings of first base? On Wednesday, I think like a big hurdle would have been the fact that Vlad still hasn't played a nine inning game. And he even told me himself like yeah that is something I still need to do and that is something that I like still a hurdle I still need to clear in these final two weeks before opening day is a full nine innings and ramping up the workload to that degree so it would have been very interesting to see how all of that was navigated and obviously we won't get to but it does sort of put Vlad's performance on Wednesday into a bit of a different context it almost feels like he was trying to prove something and almost feels like he's trying to show whoever whether it's himself teams whoever that hey i'm capable of running as fast as i do in the regular season right now i'm capable of putting balls in play at really high rates of speed right now no concerns with mobility with rotation generating power with my lower half at the plate, uh, and you even look at his third plate appearance on Wednesday, and it was like a nine-pitch AB that ended up with him flying out uh, like 323 feet to right center, but he was fouling off good two-strike offerings. He was battling. It was patient and disciplined. He was doing a little bit of that sort of Soto stuff that he does where he takes a pitch and kind of crouches and watches it and sort of taps his foot. Uh, Honestly, it was like regular season Vlad on Wednesday. It speaks to Uh, how much work and preparation players can get done away from games in spring training. And something we talked about last week, like how unimportant, honestly, like in-game spring training reps are for a lot of players.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's clearly um, gotten to a point where he's feeling pretty physically comfortable, not totally comfortable. That nine-inning threshold is definitely an interesting one to watch for him. It's, It's interesting, too, like we had talked about it last week. If this was a regular season situation, would it have been an IL stint? And, you know, in the end, he's sidelined for 11 days. Probably that's one where he ends up going on the 10-day IL at a certain point for some, you know,
1: whatever it is, knee inflammation. I kind of disagree with you on that man because I think the Blue Jays were ultra cautious with holding him out of games and even on the weekend we're recording this on Thursday so on the weekend Vlad was running the bases at close to full intensity I mean he was taking live batting practice he hit off of Adam Simber on Tuesday I believe so if this is the regular season honestly I think Vlad probably would have missed like two to three days maybe come back as just a dh uh like i think that the blue jays would have managed this a lot differently It probably depends also where in the season they are maybe it's different if it had happened in april and may versus if it happened in like july august september and just where the blue jays were were at in terms of a playoff push but i think Vlad likely would have avoided the il with this in the regular season yeah, it's certainly possible if you throw in some DH
0: days, um, he would have wanted to avoid it. Obviously, at this point, there's really nothing to lose from putting him on the sidelines because there still are two more full weeks for him to get ramped up. So there's no shortage of time. You have to imagine that there's still somewhat deliberate in ramping him up. I mean, you're not going to jump from five innings to nine innings for any player, especially someone coming off an e injury. But I guess, like, outside looking in at this point, the way I'm looking at it, I would sort of anticipate that he'd be in there kind of every second day to two out of every three days, five innings, get to seven innings, you know, make sure he's getting three at-bats every game. If he's good to play first, he's good to play first. You know, in spring training, regulars aren't making every trip anyway, so he can probably skip some of those longer trips, stay at the facility, get his work done, um, and... At this
1: point, there's really no reason to believe that he can't be fully ready for the opener. Yeah, I think it's honestly the rest of the way just about sort of conditioning the body to being on your feet for nine innings um, and to just like the cardiovascular demand and the, the CNS demand of a of a baseball game. I think that's really the biggest thing because like Vlad's bat, you know, like I said, like well, 114 uh, to left and Vlad now has... Three of the five hardest hit balls in Jay's camp, like even before the injury, I mean, Vlad was like taking David Bednar deep and uh, he smoked one off Drew Rasmussen at one point. Uh, like Vlad's locked in, like it's in today's game, like players just have so many resources outside of gameplay with which to get used to velocity and get used to like seeing stuff. Obviously you can't recreate like that pressure and anxiety being in the box and seeing a live arm, but you don't have to step in against Garrett Cole in spring training to see Garrett Cole type of stuff, you can just dial up the eye pitch machine. And like for people who don't know like what an eye pitch machine is, like it's it's a pitching machine that you can input Anybody's repertoire into it, and it will shoot baseballs at you from anywhere from like seventy-three mile per hour curveballs to one hundred mile per hour fastballs, and th- you know anything with like spin, super low spin rates. If you want to see a fastball that's not going to drop as much as it goes towards the plate, to super high spin rates. If you want to see a, like a breaking pitch that's going to you know move a ton. So you literally dial up the eye pitch machine, and you punch in like Garrett Cole's. 98 mile an hour fastball, and his like whatever his 88 slider, and whatever his changeup and his curveball are. And that machine will just randomly chuck those pitches at you. And you can face that type of velocity and that type of action in a batting cage uh, on a backfield somewhere. If you want to work on a certain sequence against Garrett Cole, if you just want to see his fastballs and sliders, if you want the machine to throw you first pitch slider second pitch slider third pitch fastball you can dial that in as well you can have a coach putting different sequences in that are going to surprise you so you can test your pitch recognition abilities like players just have access to these resources these days that allow them to prepare and get their swings to a place where they're game ready Um, it's not like it was 20 years ago so it doesn't surprise me like I don't think that Vlad needs to see that much live pitching for the rest of uh camp is what I'm trying to say I think he literally just needs to feel the workload of nine innings well yeah and I think you know we're at a point now where
0: if spring training started for veteran hitters obviously different for pitchers because you have to ramp up but for most veteran hitters if you drop them in now and said look you only get two weeks to prepare it wouldn't be ideal but most of them could probably make that work you know, you play five days a week, you get your regular at-bats, and that's, you know, for, for a lot of guys, that would be enough. That's what Brandon Belt has said. That's, you know, for for the likes of Vlad Guerrero Jr., you don't want to cut this short by another week, but at this point, he should be totally fine. So it seems like limited concern there for the Jays. But, you know, with Ricky Tiedemann, it is a, a interesting injury question and not one that you ever want to see when you're talking about a 20-year-old prospect – But the Jays did put him on the sidelines with some shoulder discomfort within the last week. And he's going to ramp back up uh, with some long toss and, and continuing to throw. So described as relatively minor, not something that seems to be a huge source of concern within the organization. But you're still talking about a young pitcher, a guy who's never thrown more than 79 innings in a season and who presently, as we record this, is not at his most healthy so you never want to see that if you're the Jays
1: no and the Blue Jays are very mindful of Ricky Tiedemann's workload for that that reason like you said 79 innings in his first professional season prior to that his biggest season was at junior college where he threw 37 innings that was like a pandemic shortened year so there just isn't that like foundational workload um, to build upon like there was with Alec Manoa who like threw a bunch of innings at the college level before he got into the Blue Jay system Then obviously was disrupted by the pandemic as well but there at least was that foundation that inning space there it's not there with Ricky Tiedemann so that's why the Blue Jays are being like as cautious and as mindful of this workload as they are you saw that last year when they midway through the season after he pitched in the futures game they brought him back to the lab and done and gave him like a few weeks to just kind of reset and to work with their biomechanic people and to make sure his release point's good and the velocity's good and all his strength stuff was sound but also just to back off like the innings load a little bit and the workload a little bit and we know right now like look it's not 2006 like innings are a poor measure of workload they measure outs (laughs) they don't measure workload really because look some outs come on one pitch and some outs come on 12 right and like some outs are in the second inning, pitching with an eight run lead, and some outs are in the sixth inning with the bases loaded, pitching with a one run lead. And those are different totally different levels of stress and anxiety and intensity the pitchers are dealing with. Even tracking throwing in-between outings, tracking warm-up pitches, tracking what you're doing in the weight room afterwards, like all of that catapult data, all of that stuff like goes into the formulation and the management of Ricky Teedman's workload going forward it's all a long-winded way of saying yeah i'm not surprised the blue jays are backing him off with this shoulder thing uh because the blue jays are just very invested in making sure Ricky Teedman has a smooth gradual build up to hopefully someday be an Alec manoa and hopefully someday throw in 198 innings at the big league level but he's still like in the very nascent stages of like just building the the basis that that will be built upon so uh look I I'm not surprised that the Ricky Tiedemann's being backed off here but I also don't think that it's that concerning of a situation as we sit here right now yeah I mean the way the Jays are
0: framing it they're not overly concerned um I think the moment
1: you know you're
0: a pitching coordinator you're Pete Walker I don't know who he went to within the Blue Jays organization but you're a Blue Jays coach presumably and Ricky Tiedemann comes up to you and says, My shoulder's barking. This is not the day and age where you're going to say, All right, doesn't matter. Get out there. Tough it out, son. Like you're going to, you're going to pitch for us no matter what. Like you're going to create some room for him to recover. You're going to slow that down the moment you hear that there's some discomfort. Not sure if there's been any imaging that's done. Presumably, that's something you'd want to think long and hard about if you're the Jays, just to make sure that there's nothing structural there. But he's on his way back to throwing in competitive environments so that is uh you know relatively speaking a good sign but until he's back out there on a mound for me until he's back out there in a competitive environment whether that's minor league spring training a minor league game those would be the logical next steps because he's no longer in major league camp but until then this is a variable this is a, a question um and if as the Jays suggest, it will be you know resolved relatively quickly. That's best case scenario. But when you're talking about pitchers who are this important to the you know long term and even potentially short term of this organization, just want to see them back on a mound before you can fully breathe easy on that front.
1: But don't you think the Blue Jays are actually happy that Ricky Tiedemann raised this with them? Sure. Um, all right. I think they'd be really encouraged by that because it's the sort of thing he easily could have just pitched through. And you easily could have just not brought to their attention. Like at this time of year, every pitcher across baseball is battling soreness, is battling fatigue, like is battling some of the symptoms that come up when you start throwing a baseball at high rates of speed, uh, you know, over and over and over again for the first time and however long, right? Because because you didn't throw during the offseason or you took like, whatever, a, a month or six weeks off of the mound and then you began a throwing progression in late December, early January and began building up and at a certain point, like, your arm's gonna feel that as it is sort of reacclimatizing to what you do and like, we see this across baseball particularly with like, young pitchers who throw really hard like you saw Cade Cavalli walk off a mound the other day right when he was pitching for the Nationals um with i think it was an elbow thing andrew painter earlier this spring had a, a situation as well uh look ricky tiedemann could easily like taken the old school tact and been like i'm not going to complain about this i don't want to be the guy who's in the trainer's room all the time you know i don't want my like teammates to feel like i'm uh you know not gotten through stuff uh, i'm just going to go out there and keep pitching really important spring for me first big league camp i'm carrying all this weight of expectations whatever i'm just going to pitch through this thing well now all of a sudden like you've got a uh, you know a strain and uh, you're missing whatever three months right like I think the fact that he brought this to the Blue Jays attention and got ahead of it is a positive thing and something that the club would be happy about I I think it's a positive within a negative like
0: once you get to the point that he has shoulder discomfort then yes you want him to handle it this way Of course, you don't want to get to the point that he has shoulder discomfort and you'd rather he was fully healthy and just able to proceed through spring. So, um, you know, now that they're here, he did what he could do. The Jays obviously backing off logical thing to do in this situation. Um, You don't want to push him too hard. Agreed. All right. So Jose Barrios uh, is healthy, but the results continue to be pretty disappointing. And this happened a few days ago now, but I still think it's worth touching on just because Jose Barrios is very important to the Toronto Blue Jays. And some of the issues that we saw in 2022 did continue in his start against Venezuela. If you look at the fastball command, he was leaving some pitches up. I know the pitch to Santander, which was hit for a home run in that game, was below the strike zone. Great piece of hitting by Anthony Santander to go get it and and hit that over the wall. But it doesn't change the fact that Jose Barrios was out there issuing some walks, leaving some fastballs over the heart of the plate, and and getting hit really hard. I mean, he pitched one-plus innings, one-and-a-third innings. Don't have it in front of me right now, but it was not a strong start for Jose Barrios.
1: He launches that one high and deep to right field. Melendez back at the wall. It is gone! <laughs> what a couple of days for that guy. Four nothing
0: Venezuela. It's March. You know, we're in the middle of March. If this was a game against the Pirates, we would give him a pass. We're not reading too much into these things. Um, but again, like it's not good. <laughs> like, I'm not I'm not here saying that Jose Barrios is destined to have a bad year because he had one bad
1: start against Venezuela, but it's not what you want to see. You mentioned the pitch to uh, Santander, which is the one that really stood out to me. Like, oh, oh, curveball to Anthony Santander, which as soon as I saw that, I was like, that is such a strange pitch to throw. When you went back and looked at it, did the game plan, did the way Jose Barrios was attacking hitters, did it stick out to you like it did to me? No, uh,
0: I was more looking at pitch location than I was thinking yeah. about the game plan, and the pitch location was—it was spotty. The location wasn't there, and that's what I'm looking for with Barrios: is the fastball command.
1: And I agree with you that some forcing fastballs were left in some bad places. Uh, He was picking it a little bit. And that is like something the Blue Jays have worked on with Jose Brios. And yeah, you you need to see better fastball command from him. But I mean, the other thing that you were seeing from Jose Brios with his fastballs was like everything was uh, in to right-handed hitters. Like, go look up the pitch chart. Like, 90% of the time, he was working in righties with his fastball. When is Jose Barrios ever going to do that in the regular season? When has he done that in the past? Go back and, like, look up Barrios against Santander last year, which I think there was, like, 12 plate appearances. Like, it's a, a decent enough sample of how the Blue Jays want to attack Santander. Tell me if there is one curveball not even just O-O, one curveball down and in to Santander because there isn't and tell me if they're like working in to right-handed hitters they're not they're working away that's what Jose Barrios does it's uh you know it's it's fastballs away against Santander it's fastballs up and change-ups away against a hitter like that it's not an OO oh curveball in like down and in to a left-handed hitter where he loves it and where he crushes Pitches. I just thought that, like, the approach, the game plan in that outing was completely bizarre, completely, like just a 180 from the way I've seen Jose Barrios pitch this spring, the way I know the Blue Jays want him pitching, the way he was pitching last year, it was just kind of like inexplicable to me, the, the the attack plan in that outing. So like that's one thing that I kind of take away from that that makes me maybe not quite as concerned about the results as I otherwise would be. The other is just, like you said, the time of year and if this had happened against the Pittsburgh Pirates in front of five thousand people, like it would be a little bit different. And we we must acknowledge it is the WBC, and Jose Brios isn't going out there like, oh, I'm just going to work on my curveballs down and into left-handed hitters. Oh, I'm just going to work on fastballs mm-hmm. into right-handers. Like he's trying to get outs, and he's trying to do it efficiently uh, but it's also probably worth noting that like you know Nick Martinez got steamrolled that day too right like Brady Singer got crushed that day by the joy Menezes of this world and here's Barrios facing Jose Altuve and you know Andres Jimenez and Luis Rice and like some really really good hitters Santander like really good hitters so I think there's good and bad in it but I just just keep coming back to just how curious the pitch choices were, the sequencing was, and the game calling was. And
0: and so let's say, for argument's sake, let's go with that. Let's say that it was not good. Let's say that it was never going to be effective. Even if that's the case, though, you would want to see better fastball command from Barrios. And so that's where I'm kind of like, uh, oh, not great, because regardless like you said this is a game you're trying to win he's clearly there to compete uh that's that's never in question and yet he's not able to locate it the way he wants um you know too many pitches over the heart of the plate you'd rather see them down in the zone on the corners ideally or up above the zone where you're going to get some swing and miss you just didn't see that from jose barrios so you know he's got a couple more weeks and now, you know, Puerto Rico will be will be advancing. So some of that time will be spent in the tournament with them. I guess as you
1: continue watching him, what are you looking for? I'm looking for him to get back to what the Jays want him doing and yeah. not pitching the way that he did against Venezuela, which is completely bizarre. Like The Jays just have a very clear plan for how they want him like what lanes they want him in how they want him tunneling the sequences they want him throwing like I promise you that Danny Jace and Alejandro Kirk are not going to call the same game mm-hmm. that was a Vasquez calling for him right like the the Vasquez the Christian Vasquez called for him with with Puerto Rico like that's just not the way the Blue Jays want Jose Barrio's pitching it's not the way they want him attacking if I'm the Blue Jays I'm almost like it's not. It's not good that he got that he got rocked. But I'm almost like, well, if if I can use this to even get a bit more buy in from Jose Prios into what we're trying to do with him, <laughs> yeah, maybe that's how I'm spinning it positively. If I'm the Blue Jays, <laughs> right? Because like that, that's what you're looking for. You're like, how can I carry something like positive forward out of this? That's what I would be doing if I was the Blue Jays. I'd be bringing him back into my environment and saying, all right, so why did you guys pitch that way? You've now seen that you should not be pitching that way <laughs> here's what we want you doing and here's what we have established throughout spring as your attack plan and hey maybe now you have a bit more buy-in in it because you've seen how it goes when it's the other way like the stuff was fine honestly like the yeah. the curveball was was moving the velo was fine yeah like you said i agree with you forcing fastball command not great not, not the sinker command was honestly okay um, it was the four-seamer that was tough, but like Jose Brios has to throw his four-seamer. He's not just gonna shelve that pitch. It's part yeah. of his repertoire. It's an important part of what of what he does. So um, like if anything, I'm just talking to him when he gets back to Judd Eden and saying, Yep, like this is why we're trying to get you to do things a bit differently, because pitching that way doesn't work. Split screen video on the one side, Venezuela
0: is just lighting him up. On the other (laughs) side, it's called strike three with Kirk and Jansen behind the plate. Love it. Little set some fire behind him. That's that's the way to go. Um, We'll see. I mean, yeah, I think if you're the Jays for all those reasons... It's a tricky one because either Dominican is advancing and Vladdy's playing. And of course, too, like I get it. Uh, You know, I'm not saying that Mark Shapiro is sitting there like rooting for all his players to be eliminated. There's also a case I understand that it's good for these players to experience success against high level competition. It's good for them to win, um, to be in those pressure situations and succeed and thrive. Of course, there's a real aspect to that. Um, There's also the other side of that coin, which is. Do you really want Vladdy out there playing nine innings, jumping up from five? Or, you know, as Puerto Rico won, now it's Jose Barrios who's out there not working with your catchers, not working with Pete Walker, your pitching development people. He's out of your hands to a certain extent. No chance for feedback in the days between those starts. So it is what it is. You know, it's part of the tournament. Every team uh, that allows their players to go accepts that and takes the good with the bad Um, but that is the line the Jays are walking with a a number of these players
1: I want to talk a bit about this as it relates as well to Edwin Diaz I don't know if you want to save that for the second half or if you want me to go in on it right now but I do have a lot of thoughts on what you just said (laughs) I have a lot of thoughts on
0: that too so why don't we come back in a minute here and pick up with uh, Edwin Diaz injuries um, some of the decision making with WBC and we'll also take a look at how the Jays are going to round out their roster. Coming up next on At The Letters. Listen to At The Letters ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to At The Letters. We should say that we welcome your thoughts and questions. You can reach us at theletters at sportsnet.ca. You can also review us, give us ratings on iTunes, download us, whatever you're doing to support the podcast, we appreciate it. We got a lot to get to today and throughout the season we'll obviously be here every week, so feel free to reach out. But let's start with really the big news in baseball, um, Arden, which is Edwin Diaz. I mean, 100 and what was his contract? 102 million. It was a big contract a with lot. the Mets and he's a great closer. And he showed as much when he shut down the Dominican team in their game against Puerto Rico and got to save and started celebrating and very unfortunately got injured, needed assistance off the field with a wheelchair. We're not exactly sure as we record this on the morning of March 16th what the uh, prognosis is, but it doesn't look good. And. You know, it raises a lot of questions. I mean, you're going to hear some people say, probably not on this podcast, although I'm not sure exactly what you think, Harden. But you'll hear some people say that this is a reason why teams should not send players. This is why teams should back off. It's tough and it sucks for the Mets because he is such an important part of their team. At the same time, you know, it's like you're going to have to allow these guys to compete whether it's in Grapefruit League games, whether it's on the backfields, you have to compete to 90, 95, 100% to get ready for the regular season. And competing means exposing yourself to a certain amount of risk. And that risk does not disappear on a backfield. It does not disappear if you are playing in Bradenton as opposed to in Miami. So to me, this is a very regrettable situation. It doesn't fundamentally change the way I view wbc um you know participation or how teams should approach it it's just one of those
1: things that is really rough for the mets yeah you mentioned it's five years 102 million dollars was the extension that edwin diaz signed which is like absurd money for a reliever but edwin diaz is an absurd reliever like it's exceptional money for an exceptional dude and so like i just I pulled up fan graphs to like double check those like contract figures and then like just start sort of perusing the uh you know the the old the lines here and like i knew like edwin diaz i would have said is the best closer in the game and then it's like oh three war as a reliever last year which is crazy three wins as somebody who is Pitching sixty times, you know, again in the sixty games, like that is crazy. And then it's oh yeah, a one three ERA, that's really good. A zero point nine FIP. Are you kidding me? Unlucky with that one three ERA, <laughs> <laughs> right? A fifty percent strikeout rate. Then, uh just absurd like mind-boggling numbers so you're right so for the level of talent that we're talking about here for obviously the contract that he signed and also the market that he pitches in New York this is going to be an absolutely like astronomical story <laughs> for the next few days wrapped up in all that stuff that you set up Um I agree with you that, like, it, Edwin Diaz didn't get injured because he went to the WBC. Like, this, like, ha, that could have happened at spring training. Like, that he could have slipped on dugout steps in one of these minor league uh, stadiums. Like, funny story, I was doing the broadcast for tv like a few weeks ago and i was like i'm in the jays dugout essentially and i'm looking and there is a baseball on the ground in the dugout uh which just got you know tossed back in after they were you know throwing it around before the inning or something like that and nobody had noticed it and like this happens all the time where there's just like so much crap all over (laughs) Right, there's just debris on the ground of the dugout, and I like it bothered me so much that I walked over and picked it up and just put it on like (laughs) on the bench because I was like, somebody's (laughs) gonna step on this thing, and it's so cramped in that little minor league dugout there. And there are in spring training so many players in the dugout and so many coaches, and Jays have a lot of staff in there. Everybody's wedged in, crammed in. They're kind of you know slinking by each other. And nobody's noticing this baseball. And I think baseball players actually have this weird sixth sense for, like, baseballs on the ground yep. where they don't for step on them. For a lot of but They are
0: very physically aware people. It's, uh, it's yeah. pretty impressive. The opposite of clumsy, whatever the – we don't have a word for the opposite of clumsy, but whatever that is. No. And I, so I don't think that, like,
1: it, it bothered – them but it bothered me a lot where i was like somebody's gonna turn an ankle somebody's gonna do an acl on this thing so but like that's that type my point is that type of stuff can happen at spring training uh and does happen sprinkler heads you know guys who get hurt in weight rooms and stuff all kinds of crazy stuff happens in spring training guys who are like slicing fruit and who is the jays player who like cut himself slicing something in his kitchen uh years ago you know what I'm talking about? Did Aaron Loop or Brett
0: Cecil, that's ringing a bell. I'm also remembering Kevin Pilar sneezing, you know, like, yeah. what are you going <laughs> to do tell your players not to sneeze? <laughs> Hold it in, guys. Like, it's at a certain point. I kind of compare it to, you know, anytime I'm I'm thinking about buying shoes, you know, maybe looking at some nice shoes. And I, I always tell myself, you got to be prepared for these shoes to get completely dirty because that's what you're wearing them on your feet, right? It's kind of like that with baseball players. You're putting them out there into the world. You don't know what's going to happen. Like, don't, don't. You know, get into this business unless you're prepared for some amount of risk. It's just what happens. Exactly.
1: So, for all those reasons, like I, it's not about the injury, but I do think from a club perspective, with players going to the WBC, it's more so about the level of care that the athlete will receive if something like this happens it's not the you know something like this happening it's what happens after it and even what happened before it to lead up to it but in this case with diaz especially i think it's what happened after it because look i like i am not a physical therapist i'm not an athletic trainer i don't have a kinesiology degree i could be wrong here but just and this is just last night that i watched this and maybe my thoughts on it will evolve but the standard of care that Edwin Diaz received immediately following that injury was honestly shocking to me like professional athlete suffers serious looking leg injury and the response is to lift him up by the leg and try carrying him off the field then they try letting him walk off the field ultimately he is loaded into a wheelchair A wheelchair with somebody holding the leg as he's being carted off the field. It was one of the most like surreal scenes. And again, like I don't have kinesiology credentials to truly judge this maybe that was all fine and above board but like (laughs) i was kind of i gotta gotta stop you i i I cannot imagine that in kinesiology school they would
0: allow that like i think that your instinct is pretty right here and maybe well maybe our inbox will be flooded by all our kinesiology listeners and i welcome that but i mean there's no way that's how you would want to treat these these injuries
1: right don't you leave him where he is yeah Calm them down, breathe, talk to them. What are you experiencing? What sensations are there? Get a professional an athletic trainer who has credentials to assess this situation and determine next steps before Edwin Diaz even moves because maybe there's a reason to immobilize the leg, right? Like maybe there is a concern of something structural that could be worsened by moving that leg. Maybe you got to get a cart out there and you got to strap them on, right? And, and have them carted off the field. Like you want to take every precaution in that scenario, I'm pretty sure you don't want to just lift him up and throw him in a wheelchair. So I think that for clubs, that is the big concern. It's just like the standard of care and the resources that athletes are going to have access to if things like this happen. It extends to Burrios as well. I would bet the Blue Jays aren't very happy with Christian Vasquez and Yadier Molina and whoever else went into that game plan that Jose Burrios carried into that outing so i i just think that like the environment the individuals that the athletes are going to be working with i think that is the big part of the concern for clubs
0: yeah and there's a part of me that's sort of tempted to draw a line here and say hey this is why you don't spend 102 million dollars on relievers but i actually want to stop myself in my tracks there because we're talking about the new york mets here and that's exactly what the new york mets should be doing they've got tons of money edwin diaz is a great pitcher Go out and do it. Sometimes they're going to get hurt. That you live with it. You know, does he miss a month? Does he miss the year? We don't know at this point. It's the cost of doing business. You want a three win reliever on your team? You accept the risk that comes with that one hundred and two million dollar investment.
1: Yeah, and just even you look around the Blue Jays facility, how many trainers Ben do you run into, and like how many staff members? And like we've done tours of the player development complex, and like just all the resources that players have access to like if Ricky Tiedemann goes to the WBC and feels some sort of shoulder fatigue or soreness, discomfort, whatever he's going through, Well, maybe he doesn't have access to the same resources that he does in the Blue Jays environment. Not all those variables are controlled for. Maybe he's like, ah, it's WBC. I'm pitching for my country. I'm just going to push through this. And now maybe he's like sidelined until August with uh, whatever he's done to his shoulders. So I think that that's like a very big reason why teams are so reticent uh, when, when their players are going to the
0: WBC. Agreed. Agreed. You know, it has been a really compelling tournament. I haven't watched every single inning of it, but I've been watching every day and watching, you know, Team Canada play, watching good chunks of the American games, Dominican games. Sometimes you have the Japan games on early. That's a super fun team to watch. I guess like before we zoom in a little bit on Otto Lopez and his connection to the to the Jays, their battle for that final roster spot. Any big picture thoughts in the tournament? You know, we've, we've looked at it as a way to kind of grow with the game. I find it pretty entertaining, especially compared to Grapefruit League. Like, you know, by the third, fourth inning of a Grapefruit League game, your attention, my attention sort of drifts, really. Like, it's I'm not as locked in, you know, let's say it's the Pirates relievers against, you know, Vinny Capra at the plate. I, I just, I'm not necessarily as dialed in as
1: I would be for a WBC game where you have Shohei Otani throwing 102. Yeah, there just isn't a good time for it. Is the thing to get participation and to get like you like athletes and clubs to be into sending their athletes to this tournament and participating in it. Like it's so disruptive <laughs> at this point. Uh, in the year it's hard just to get guys insured coming off of injuries saw that with with team canada and then it's hard to ask like a lot of players who especially guys who would have to be going over to you know play in in asia to like fly across the world you saw that with jordan romano who was like yeah man am i gonna like you know disrupt my entire schedule and build up to the regular season to go pitch for you know team italy like screw up my entire like body clock and my sleep and my training and my nutrition like all that stuff like it just comes as such an important Time for MLB players as they kind of build up towards important, which is the regular season, and where they get paid, which is MLB in the regular season. Like, there are other sports that aren't like this. Like, I watch a lot of rugby, right? And uh, the Six Nations are on. I watch, you know, Antoine Dupont, who's like one of the best players in the world, or like Romain Intimac play for their country, play for France much more often than I watch them play for Toulouse, which is their club team because that's like the priority in rugby is actually international wow. competition and representation like the Six Nations is a tournament in Europe with like you know, France England, Scotland Ireland, Wales like it's contested every year and the best players in the world represent their nations every single year like it's not even a question it's if you are healthy, if you're fit and selected you're going. Because the international team is a priority over your club team, whereas in MLB and in most North American sports, it's the reverse, where like your club, like your professional team is actually the the priority over your international team. And oh by the way, this is a rugby world cup year. Like there's a World Cup later on this year, um, in which like all the best nations in the world are going to can, you know, play each other to see who's the best team in the world. But like the right now, the like priority, even in a non-World Cup year, is international representation. And that's just different in other sports than it is in baseball. I don't know if you're ever gonna reverse that with not only baseball, but most North American sports where the, the wages that the players earn for club play, for you know professional team play, NHL NBA, etc. Uh, are so great.
0: Yeah, I you know I do get the sense though, looking around the rosters in Canada's to some extent an exception to this, where you have you know Joey Votto, Josh Naylor, um, Michael Soroka, for various reasons, you know, not playing Nick Pavetta um, could be suiting up. They're not. Um, you look around though at the sport as a whole, and they've had great participation um, to get Shohei Otani, Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, Vlad Jr., Juan Soto, Julio Rodriguez. Most of the biggest stars in the game have actually bought in at least on the position player side, and. I think with baseball, that's a huge step um, to get there. You want to stay there. I don't think you'd really necessarily hope for a ton more on that front. And the pitching part is really where you run into it because pitchers oftentimes want to ramp up in a more controlled environment. They don't necessarily want to, um, you know, expose themselves to some of the uncertainty, some of those pressures before the before the season because it is in many ways a bigger ask of those pitchers so i don't know if there's a workaround there timing wise you're not going to do it at the end of the season you're obviously not going to do it in the middle of the season i mean you could take two weeks in july but realistically baseball is not going to give up regular season games um during such an important part of the calendar when they want to own you know that part of the sports entertainment world so i i think this kind of is what it is Um, do you see any way to get
1: more pitchers participating or is this kind of a plateau for the wbc no, i floated to a couple of people. Well, what if you did something mid season and just bang the all-star break? But like the response that I've gotten is that at that point in an MLB season, a lot of guys are gonna say, Yeah, I'm just gonna take the time off. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just gonna let my body <laughs> <Yeah>. heal. <laughs> right? Like this is the, I don't really wanna go into this intense competition in July after I've you know, already logged hundred innings in, in my season. So that doesn't seem ideal either. Like there just isn't a great time to have this tournament which is too bad because like look it's great to see international competition for for baseball like we get so little exposure to some of the japanese players that that you've been watching and you know korean players even like it was cool seeing some of the great britain players right like yeah we i i I know the mlb calls it the world series but like the world series is not the world series (laughs) mlb is extremely american right I, I don't have it in front of me but probably about three-fourths of the league right 70 75 percent is from the united states and then you've got you know a, a bunch of guys from the dominican republic and then some from venezuela and then like a very small amount from i don't know cuba canada mexico puerto rico right and it's like super cool to see guys like jazz chisholm break through from bahamas or uh, like max kepler from germany leah hendrix from australia but those are extreme exceptions. Uh, so to get to see like an actual Great Britain team competing, to get to see an Italian team competing, Israel competing, right? Like to get to see like just players that we're not exposed to because the because MLB is so American is cool. I think it helps uh, globalize the the sport. I think MLB could do a better job of you know breaking through and going over and playing some games. In Europe, like we've seen from from the NFL, like I think it's it's always going to be an uphill battle in Europe with like with soccer, with cricket, with rugby, with how popular those those sports are, but. I would think there's also maybe a little bit of natural crossover athletically from cricket, right? Just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, It's tough because baseball, like, it's not a raw athleticism sport, right? It's a fine motor skill sport. So you really have to begin developing like skills as a pitcher and as a hitter very early in your life, and you have to work on them for a very long time. There's not very many like Pascal Siakam stories in baseball where it's like, "Oh, I just picked up a basketball at 18, and now I'm (laughs) Pascal Siakam." Like you don't find that. MLB, typically, it's yeah, I've played this all my life, and it's taken that long to get good at it. It's not like football where you can just be 6'6, 280 uh, of you know, explosive fast twitch muscle, and we can get you up to a point where you can play in the NFL. Uh, It takes a long time to learn the technique of of baseball, but. I, you know, I, I do think that you have to start somewhere and that starts at the grassroots level and that probably starts with MLB doing a better job of like exposing itself to non-traditional markets. Well, because, you know, in Canada and in the States,
0: people know baseball, you know, like we're we're in a market in Toronto and broadly in Canada where people are well, well aware of the Toronto Blue Jays and of Major League Baseball and you know, maybe we're more often described as a hockey country, but baseball is so much the predominant summer sport here. It takes up a really big part of our collective attention um, in the summertime. It's not a mystery; like people know what baseball is. They either like it or they don't. You know, you're kind of saturated. To some, there's always room for growth. But you know, you've you've kind of reached a lot of a lot of people in a way that for some of these countries, to have it on display, like Great Britain, for instance. You reach more people and then you have uh, some stakes. You have, you know, some pretty impressive young players like Harry Ford of the Mariners looks like an impressive young catcher for them. Um, that can be really cool and potentially increase, you know, generation to generation. We're not talking next year here, but that is the long game that they're playing as they try to grow the sport. And, you know, one other thing that I'm kind of uh, struck by on that front Is And I know it wouldn't have been possible this year because they're doing the renovations at Rogers Centre. But I'm thinking back to 2009 where the Rogers Centre in Toronto was host uh, to some World Baseball Classic games. An incredible atmosphere. I was there as a fan at the time. Um, And, you know, it's something that I really hope in the next iteration of the tournament that Canada is able to host some games because, you know, you want to reach more fans, I think that'd be a great way to do it going forward. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So Otto Lopez is our tie in here to the blue Jays, because I mean, this is one of those really interesting situations in that you're facing very high level competition. So if you're a player like Otto Lopez, you're facing basically major leaguers, guys like her who are established at getting the best hitters in the world out. And Otto Lopez was great in that situation. To me, it wasn't a total shock because even going into this tournament, he was a guy that I was looking at. But to see him do that on this stage kind of reinforces to me that this is a guy that should be front and center in the discussion for that final utility spot on the Jays roster.
1: Yeah, I know we talked about him. I don't know if it was two weeks ago or it was one of the early spring training podcasts where, cause I remember having some conversations early in spring training and people telling me, yeah, Otto Lopez doesn't get the love that he deserves. Like he gets overlooked by you guys in the media a lot. And I was like, yeah, you know what? At the AAA level, like he's on base all the time. It's a very professional plate appearance. He grinds pitchers. Uh, he's like hit 300 and, in the minors despite putting a ton of contact on the ground. Uh and then I went and kind of talked to Otto a little bit about it before he went to the WBC and he kind of told me about playing winter ball and working on some swing changes and some things he's trying to do to add some more line drive contact and add some more loft and not have so much of his contact be on the ground and tap a bit more into some of the sort of extra base juice that the Blue Jays think that he has in his bat. And lo and behold, uh, you know, he's hitting line drives throughout spring training before the WBC and then he goes to the tournament and he's like lacing triples into the gap and he's like hitting balls uh, over walls and, you know, uh, in quite an environment against some like pretty good pitching. Uh, It's kind of cool to kind of see the realization of a lot of this work because Otto Lopez has been working hard with guys like Guillermo Martinez and Hunter Mentz behind the scenes to just stayed through the ball a lot more and to just tap in a bit more to um you know to to just getting the ball off the ground because he has the speed and the athleticism to put up a pretty high batting average um in the minors with as much ground ball contact as he was making he's obviously got a great feel for contact um but at the big league level typically with the level of defense that you're facing and the deployments defensively that you're facing it's tough to sustain that so like a really big step for him is just more line drive contact more extra base hits and you're starting to see that so it's going to be interesting to see how that can carry over into uh, into the regular season yeah they're big steps and
0: you know that's it seems as though he's also added some strength this is a guy who does not hit a lot of home runs um at least historically but we did see him hit a huge home run um, for Canada in the WBC, as he was really one of their one of their big contributors um, in Not that sure lineup. Drive to left. That ball's deep. That ball's gone. Three run shots.
1: Oh, Canada!
0: Five Obviously, nothing. when players make that jump from the upper minors to the major leagues, nine times out of ten, you're going to see a reduction in in the stat line like you're not going to hit 300 in the majors if you're hitting 300 at triple a most of the time um, there are exceptions to that maybe Boba shot on that list but um, in the case of Otto Lopez if he were to get to the major leagues this year I really don't see a reason that he couldn't go out there and hit 260 with an on-base percentage maybe 320 330 slugging percentage maybe 400 that doesn't sound amazing but to me that is Pretty useful from a 26 man on your roster who can play some second base, some shortstop, some outfield. I'm not saying he's a goal glover at any of those positions, but he can do it. He can handle that situation and he really seems ready against advanced competition. So to me at this point, you know, and there are a couple weeks left. there's And as we always say every year on At the Letters, it's probably not a ton of point in obsessing over does he break the opening day roster? Is he that final? Doesn't really matter. The point is. He seems to me to be ready to contribute at the major league level right now for the Jays.
1: Zips thinks he could be a 253 average, 309 OBP, 343 slug in 112 games played at the big leagues level. So a little below what you were projecting, but. Yeah, not that far off. And the minor league numbers enforce that. And I think that the minor league walk rate and strikeout rate would be like really big inputs into that projection. And we've seen that Otto Lopez can work an approach and can draw a bunch of walks and use his contact ability to not strike out very often. Those are typically pretty good predictors moving up. And and look, like if I had,
0: if I was only going off the numbers, then You probably land where Zips does, but having seen Otto Lopez produce in spring training games and then in WBC against high-level competition, I know it's small sample. We're talking 30 or 40 at-bats, but they've been really good at-bats. So to me, I actually, I'll stick with my projection over Zips on this one. (laughs) I could see him doing, you know, let's say, yeah, whatever it is, 325 OBP, 400 slug. I don't think that that's unreasonable, uh, given what we have seen from Otto Lopez. Yeah, we'll see if uh,
1: BNS or Zips yeah. is a more uh, reliable model. But there's, there's some of the kind of like soft science stuff as well in that like Otto Lopez like a really um, well-regarded teammate and sort of character in Clubhouse guy. Everybody loves him. He's a super hard worker. Being, he was up quite a bit last year, and I just remember being on the road when he was up, and he was always in that like uh, Bo Bichette, Santiago Espinal group that was out on the field with Louis Rivera super early in the day, getting their work in. I talked to Otto about this before he went to WBC and he was telling me about how he would get to the ballpark and try to get into the weight room as early as possible. Like as early as they would let him in in the day because he was kind of deferring to the players who were going to be playing in the game that night that they needed to have the weight room closer to game time. And he didn't want to be in there working when players were getting ready to play in a game so he showed up super early to get his work done like it's a small thing yeah but that type of stuff is as you know really meaningful in the walls of of the big league clubhouse
0: well you know you think like if you're a if you're a rookie player and you know, you're you're in there at whatever it is, five thirty p.m. on the squat rack, and Vlad Jr. is kind of looking at his watch, wondering when he gets to work, um, get his work in. You know, that's uh, that's probably not the best look. You probably want to be uh, a little bit um, a little bit cautious. And I know there's like. These guys are teammates. We're in a different era as we should be. It's not like the rookie has to wait. Of course you can go in there and and use the weights and, and do so in a respectful way that's not getting in the way of your teammates. But I think that does reflect a certain um, you know, desire on Otto Lopez's
1: part to to fit in with the team. No, it reflects his character, I think, and there's like, like not every player would have that feel. Nobody was forcing Otto Lopez to get there early to work out before like flat had even rolled into the ballpark, right? Like they, that's just what he did because he's like this is the right thing to do. So I think it it reflects his character certainly, um, and I think look the multi positional like versatility is huge. He's he told me he's most comfortable at second, but we've seen him play shortstop at the WBC. We saw him play center field for the. Blue. Blue Jays uh earlier in camp he can play essentially anywhere but catcher um he could probably pitch for you if you needed him to in a in a blowout but like essentially anywhere on the field but pitcher and catcher this guy can play so like that is valuable the right-handed bat is valuable for the way the Blue Jays are constructed right now and what they might be looking for out of that 13th position player spot but like something I would throw at you is so like the the 13th position player on the Blue Jays, we saw it last year. It's not a guy who plays. Like it's not someone who's in the lineup regularly. It's not someone who gets a lot of played appearances. At least it wasn't when Bradley Zimmer was inhabiting it, essentially all of last year. The Blue Jays, I think toyed around with the idea last year of using that 13th position player spot as essentially a very specialized role player who can come into a game late and impact it in a big way with the speed, like who has like elite speed, like Bradley Zimmer had or an elite defender, which is like Bradley Zimmer you know, also was like somebody who can come into a game and change a game with a defensive play late. Do you think the blue Jays treat that spot differently? this year do you think that there's more room for someone like an Olo lopez who maybe could see more plate appearances or do you think that they would more so like to continue experimenting there and seeing if there's uh just a unique skill set they can wedge into their roster with honestly a roster spot that they would probably prefer to use on another bullpen arm but just can't because of the 13 pitcher limit yeah exactly
0: i mean it's i think it's an interesting question i think that you know when you're looking at how you build a bench and what you're looking for, clearly, you're not just building a bench in the abstract. You're building a bench that is designed to complement your starting position players. So, to some extent, yes, you're just going to take the best players who are not starting players on your team, but you also have to find players who can be, can and will be used in practical ways late in games or when there's a certain starting pitcher matchup that you want to work around. So... That's why the Blue Jays had the players that they did on their bench last year. Bradley Zimmer and Jackie Bradley Jr., for instance, very, very good defensive outfielders. Why did they have that? Well, you know, there are a lot of times that the starting outfielders on the Jays were not that good last year. They wanted to have a layer of insurance. So that's where Bradley Zimmer fit in. Now that we're talking about a team that innings one through seven, one through six, they will already be a good defensive team. And so you do not need to carry defensive replacements. You can afford to go a bit more offense-heavy on the bench for the most part. Um, and so is that someone like a Lucas, Nathan Lucas? Is that an Addison Barger at some point this season? Otto Lopez obviously has the ability to at least make some contact and get on base. But to me, what I'm looking for, if, if I'm the Jays, is, all right, it's late in the game. You have Brandon Belt or Kevin Kiermaier facing a left-handed pitcher Those are the guys that you know. Realistically, you're going to substitute out for a pinch hitter against a tough lefty reliever who's coming in. So that's where I am kind of drawn to a right-handed bat in that situation. I think that's a player who could see regular playing time, who could be more than you know a figurehead who's kind of hanging around the way Bradley Zimmer was last year. Vinny Capra, Winton Bernard, those guys are right-handed hitters as well as Otto Lopez. But for me, right now. I'd put Otto Lopez in there. And then if it is, you know, Kirk obviously would be the primary right-handed hitting option on days that he is not um, in the starting lineup. But if Kirk's already in, maybe you use Danny Jansen. But you want to have some other options. And so I think that having an
1: Otto Lopez to come in for a Brandon Belt, for example, I think there's some value there. That's that's what makes me wonder about how the Blue Jays will use this roster spot because their bench is so much deeper this year. Like on any given day, like John Schneider and Don Manningly are going to be looking down the bench at late game pinch hit, pinch run, whatever options. Be looking at guys like you said, one of Kirk or Jansen, like two of Espinal, Biggio, and Merrifield. Right? Like there's going to be a bunch of days where Brandon Belt starts on the bench and is is pinch hitting as well. I mean, Kevin Kiermaier might be like, your, uh, it's pretty good late game defensive replacement if he's not starting for you on that day, right? And if it's a, a Varsho center field day or a Springer center field day, which by the way, I think you're gonna see a good amount of Springer center field days this year. I think the mistake we make so often in spring training is thinking about that final bench spot as like a meritocratic competition which it really very rarely is like it comes down to who has options what's our depths like you're not trying to build the best roster for opening day you're trying to build the best roster for april may june like throughout the course of the season i know there's a lot of importance for players for being on the opening day roster like as there should be it's really cool to get your name read you know aloud and to be there on opening day um but I do think that when clubs look at this, it much more often comes down to preserving depth and building as deep of a roster as possible. So let's say that the Blue Jays get to the end of spring training and there's Otto Lopez with options and Nathan Lucas with options, and they would have to make like a 40 man decision to get, you know, Winton Bernard on. Um, Barger has options as well. Capra is off the 40 right now. So that'd be another decision that would have to be made. Well, Okay, so the guys who aren't on the 40 are up against it, certainly. And then the other three that we mentioned all have options. And then it's like, oh, hey, uh, Oakland just designated Christian Pache for assignment uh, because he's out of options there and he didn't make the club. And oh, hey, he's a 24 year old right handed hitting center fielder who's an excellent defender and very fast, kind of similar to a Bradley Zimmer type. Maybe we're optioning all three of Lopez, uh, Lucas, and Barger, and adding Pache, moving Ryu to the 60 man. Now we've just increased our depth and, like, made ourselves, like, set ourselves up better for the course of the season. And we get to bring Pache into our environment and kind of see how he looks and if we can help him, um, you know, tap back into the contact rates that he showed earlier in his career, get the ball off the ground a bit. And he gives us some utility. As a defender and as a you know a pinch run option, and he's just occupying a spot on our roster that isn't going to see very many plate appearances and very much playing time anyway. Could be Kessinera with uh, you know, with Milwaukee, right? Who's again right-handed hitting infielder, still pretty young. It's got some pop, good barrel rates, but uh, you know obviously has had a tough time the last couple of years. Might not make Milwaukee's opening day roster. Might end up getting DFA'd if you're the Blue Jays. Maybe you take them on and see if there's something there. Try to sneak them through waivers yourself later in April if you end up up against it and just kind of preserve that roster depth going forward. Well, exactly. And if you're the pro scouting department of the Blue Jays right now, you
0: need to be looking out for those guys. That's the job of the pro scouting world is to understand who is available, who might become available, what depth charts looks like look like around the league and where there could be opportunities for the Jays. So... Hopefully that Christian Pache one comes true because that would be a deep call. That would be one of the better um, predictions made on At The Letters. So
1: if if it does come true, you heard
0: it here first.
1: I'm just saying that like, we know how MLB organizations operate, and we've seen how the Blue Jays operate. So we know what they've done with this 13th position player spot in the past. We've seen the type of playing time that is there, and we've seen the decisions that they make roster-wise towards the end of spring training. So it's not just a straight-up meritocracy. Otto Lopez earned it. He should be there. A lot of times it's like, hey, it, it could be Kesson Hira, right? I think Pache is a really interesting name, but I you don't know who's going to shake out at the end of camp. But uh, I, I think if that opportunity is there, the Blue Jays would look at it objectively and say, yeah, we should add another layer of depth to our organization. Otto Lopez's time is going to come during the regular season he yeah. impacts this roster. It doesn't have to be on opening day. Exactly. And I think as
0: long as it's a good player, right? Because if you're doing it for a Zach Collins or Bradley Zimmer, you know,
1: which they just did last year, though. Oh, I know. We saw it.
0: Yeah. And I'm not saying that there's, you know, that that there's there's not an advantage sometimes to taking a gamble on a guy. But this is also a team that needs to win games. So I have no problem. If there's no one who really jumps off the waiver wire, I don't think you need depth for the sake of depth. I think you can keep that 40-man spot open. There will be a need for it in the course of the season. And if Lopez is ready, I think great. So that to me, that's a high baseline. And then if you can improve upon that,
1: so much the better. For me, it's even like if uh, Jesus Sanchez gets DFA'd by the Marlins and it's like this guy's super toolsy and has some of the biggest exit velos in the game and massive arm strength in the outfield and obviously like a ton of swing and miss, right? There's a reason why he's being DFA'd, but it's like, can we help him? Could, is there something here? Zach McKinstry. Right. A guy who like for years just couldn't crack the Dodgers roster because it was like so, so deep ends up with the Cubs and like may not crack their roster either and may end up getting DFA'd at the end of at the end of spring as the Cubs try to get him to AAA. Maybe you take a chance on him as a utility infield type. Like I to me, if those opportunities, if I was in the front office, those opportunities came up at the end of spring. I would be taking those flyers because there's no risk to it and you don't lose anything. You preserve your depth and you know that Otto Lopez is probably still going to play a bunch of games for you at the big league level down the line when somebody gets hurt or when you get into a a roster crunch situation.
0: Well, we will see where it goes here. Um, we'll certainly be watching closely as uh, as the Jays try to round out their roster. We got a couple more weeks before that decision's made, but we will continue providing lots of content, Arden. I know you'll be writing for us the next few days. I'll see you down there in Florida before too long. But thanks as always for your insight on at the letters. Thanks as well to all of our listeners for tuning in and making time for us here as the Jays spring continues. And thanks as well To our producers, Christian Ryan and Nick Androd, we will talk to you soon, and thank you for listening to At The Letters.